The earlier you are as a company, the more of a bet you are asking someone to make on you as a person, on a, as a founder and as a team. And so I think the biggest thing to over-index on is being the type of founder that people want to back regardless of what the product or what the pitch is at the current moment. Hey, this is Jesse here with episode 86 of the Betting Startups podcast, which happens to be our quarterly investor vibe check where we chat with three industry investors to get their perspective on the landscape from their side of the table. The Q3 Vibe Check welcomes Dave Van Eggman from Better Capital, John Von Dalen from Drive by DraftKings, and Lloyd Danzig from Sharp Alpha Advisors. The discussion goes deep on the shifting operator landscape in Q3, the increasing role of AI and what excites them about it, and some actionable advice for founders looking to raise in a challenging environment. This was another can't miss episode that I hope you enjoy as much as I did. But before we get started, I wanted to make sure you're subscribed to the Betting Startups newsletter, which is the easiest way to keep up with the betting industry's early stage companies. It's a free weekly publication that gives you all the headlines around new fundings, partnerships, and product launches. It also includes the extremely popular Deal Corner, where we share investment opportunities in industry startups that are looking to change the game. Take 10 seconds and subscribe now at news.bettingstartups.com. All right, we are rolling with episode 86 of the Betting Startups podcast. It's the first week of October, which means it's time to take a look back for our quarterly investor vibe check episode. As we did three months ago, we're welcoming a panel of highly respected and successful industry investors to this episode to share some perspective on the state of things from their end of the table. We decided to mix things up and invite three new investors for this discussion. So let's start with a quick round of introductions. If each of you could take a minute to introduce yourself, your firm, maybe a couple notable portfolio companies, and a brief overview of your investment profile, that would be awesome. We'll go alphabetically by first name. So over to you, Dave, to get us started. Thanks, Jesse. Great to be on with you. My name is Dave Bankman. I'm the managing partner of Better Capital. We are a venture capital firm focused on the real money online gaming space. Uh, we started a few years ago raising a little over $100 million dollars now deployed in 11 portfolio companies across the sports betting, iGaming, iLottery ecosystem. I spent a lot of time in this space prior to that. I was an executive at FanDuel and, and Barstool Sports, where I was head of strategy, corporate development at both of those companies. So well-connected in the industry and have a lot of friends around the industry that we look to, to partner with and then invest in startups that are, are servicing them. So excited to be on with you. A couple of portfolio companies to mention XPoint in the geolocation space, Interchecks in the, in the payment space, Beyond Play in the casino space. So a lot of exciting innovative startups that we're supporting and, and proud to do so. Awesome. John, over to you. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. Great to be on the podcast. I'm John Bondion, principal at Drive-By DraftKings. We're a multi-stage venture fund focused across sports tech and entertainment with a unique and, and strategic platform um, that we invest behind. We're not a corporate venture arm, so I'll just clarify that. For our listeners, but DraftKings is an anchor LP for us within the fund and a highly strategic partner. Um, I mentioned we invest across sports tech and entertainment which we define through three verticals, gaming, fandom, and human performance. So obviously a heavy focus um, on the gaming and on the gambling industry, but um, we do invest more broadly across sports tech and entertainment as well. I mentioned we're multi-stage, but generally seed focused that we look to lead seed deals where appropriate, and then we'll invest at later stage opportunities when we see the right type of venture return upside. Um, a little bit about myself. I joined the team two years ago, right as we announced and launched the fund. Um, prior to that, I came from Goldman Sachs where I was in their technology, media, and telecom group based out of New York City, doing a lot of work in the media space with both sports as well as music clients. Quick highlight on our portfolio, I'll call out Papaya Gaming. 
which is cash-based uh, skill gaming platform focused on uh, bingo and other casual games. Um, you know, it goes, I'd say, along just one of our broader theses around cash-based casual gaming and the um, tailwinds that they benefit from with the legalization of both iGaming as well as sports betting. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more throughout today's episode, but certainly a space that we think has got a lot of room to run moving forward. Awesome. Last but not least, friend of the podcast, Lloyd. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And great to be here with, with John and Dave, whom I have great pleasure of, of collaborating with on, on a very regular basis. Lloyd Danzig, the managing partner at Sharp Alpha Advisors. We're an early stage venture fund. We focus on sports gaming and entertainment. Recent investment in the space includes Slam Ball, Las Vegas-based Trampoline Basketball League, Jackpot, online digital lottery company, uh, and Almost Friday Media, a humor-focused content brand with a heavy emphasis on sports. Uh, we tend to focus on seed, but occasionally Series A investments, and we're looking for people who are building the next big thing in category that I like to refer to as competitive entertainment, uh, which I generally define as any form of entertainment where having skin in the game and, and caring about outcomes uh, is what matters. Awesome. Appreciate it, guys. Let's get right into it here and start with a little bit of a look back on Q3. And obviously quite a bit has happened that is relevant to the sports betting vertical. Let's start with some operator consolidation that we've seen. Obviously, a, a few deals we can look to, uh, you know, Fanatics acquisition of points bet, you know, Foxbet recently getting wound down, Winbet announcing that they're scaling back operations. So quite a bit of movement at the operator level. While at the same time, you know, we continue to see sort of the market share dynamic continue to persist, whereby, you know, the quote unquote big two have a disproportionate amount of market share concentration amongst them. So I guess just to start off with, I'd love to hear from each of you kind of what you make of, of the dynamics in terms of where we're at uh, now and, and sort of what transpired in Q3. And ultimately, you know, do you see these transactions and sort of this type of movement as being a net good or bad thing for the sector's overall health? Maybe I'll uh, ask Dave to kick us off here for this one. Yeah, I think it's an interesting time in the market. I, I think maybe the quarter could be des best described as as really the end of phase one of the online sports betting and iGaming market in the U.S. You called out a few of the exits in the M&A, but I also you're seeing a scaling up of fanatics in a material way, a scaling up of Bet365 and others who have not made any announcements or decisions, but it's somewhat clear that they're, they're pulling back or, or people who had ambitions to be multi-state or national operators are now focusing on a handful of cost-effective states. I think overall, the conclusion of stage one has demonstrated, you know, cost of entry is extremely high. To get, to get licensed in New York or to get licensed as a casino operator in Pennsylvania, it's it's expensive, it's time-consuming, and even if you go to those markets, you may not be able to build a viable business if you don't have enough of market share. So I think Things will change as the market of big players gets more competitive. Certainly, Fanatics and Bet365 have the firepower to compete. Penn is doing their deal with ESPN to try to accelerate their market share. Caesars and MGM and others remain competitive. They will be looking to add market shares and try to push to, to generate significant profits from the business. And I think the long tail will have some challenges unless they can find competitive differentiation or cost-effective ways to acquire and, and retain customers. I would just add to that. I think those are, are, are all great points. You know, occasionally I, I hear the narrative reported as if it is surprising or dismaying that these operators, for the most part, have, have dropped out of the market. The three of us here and many of our industry counterparts were asked frequently post-PASPA, how many players will there be in the mature state of the market? 
And maybe people gave answers somewhere between four and 10, let's say, but no one said 35 or 48 or 23 or, you know, however many the actual total number of operators are. And so it, in my view, should not be a surprise or, or a negative indicator that some of the efforts, you know, are, are, are no longer ongoing. I, I think it was either, I think it was uh, Chris Lynch at Citizens who did the math and, and said that if you looked at all these companies that, that had shut down in the last 12 months or so, PlayUp, WinBet, MaximBet, Barstool, Fubo, it's just north of 200 million in last 12 month gross gaming revenue, less than 3% of the total market. And I think in any given industry, you might expect roughly 3% of market share to get reorganized either by way of M&A or, or organic pulling of the herd in, in any given year. So I, I just think all, all Dave's comments absolutely still apply. And I would just add on to that, the nuance that I don't see any of this as anything other than just orderly procession of a maturing and growing industry. And you know, capital markets functioning naturally and, and the market deciding uh, what assets are worth and, and which assets are viable to continue to be floated by public company investors. All great points by, by both Lloyd and, and Dave. I think, you know, a few things I'd, I'd quickly add here is as we get to the end here of phase one, as Dave mentioned, you know, it's not just a lifted shift of what was the brick and mortar retail experience within a sports book. That was oftentimes the secondary or tertiary experience in a resort-based trip when you went to a Vegas or another location. And, you know, you didn't really need to optimize the actual player experience in a sports book. That paradigm has been flipped on its head when you think about the online sports betting experience. I'm showing up to that sports book with that as my primary experience. And not to mention I'm showing up every day or I'm showing up multiple times a day. So we're big believers both within sports betting and the broader gaming industry. Great product is going to win in the long term. And I think that's been a big reason why you've seen the FanDuel's and the DraftKings establish the market show that they have. Now, where I think the industry is in a really exciting position is like Dave mentioned with some of the M&A and some of the consolidation, we have very well capitalized um, newer entrants as well capitalized incumbents that are sitting in that third, fourth, and fifth spot on the market share and looking to gain and looking to gain rapidly. And they're going to look for ways to innovate, look for ways to, to launch new products. I think we've already seen that in the market with the announcement of BetVision uh, within the last week. And we think it's going to be a really exciting time because you have these well-capitalized players who are going to try new things, who are going to push the boundaries of what's possible in an online gaming experience. And that's also going to push the incumbents themselves to not just sit on their hands, but continue to innovate and think about that player experience and think about how do we retain and hold on to that market share that they built over the last couple of years. Yeah, all, all great comments, guys. And Dave, you know, you mentioned uh, Bet365 and Fanatics as a couple challengers that are well-capitalized, that are well-positioned to meaningfully take a run at capturing some of the market share. But obviously... You know, in Q3, we also saw the announcement of ESPN bet. Everybody had their hot takes uh, about six weeks ago when that deal first got announced. And we're in a bit of a lull with that now. I mean, all of the, you know, all of the various storylines, I guess, have been absorbed now. And, you know, we're a few weeks away, I understand, from seeing the first iteration of the ESPN bet products. I'm curious what you guys think about what does success look like for ESPN bet? Obviously, expectations are high. And just talking purely about the, the dollar amounts involved in that deal and sort of the expectations that come with that, you know, what can ESPN bet do to succeed? And, you know, John, you touched upon product differentiation. I mean, do you guys expect to see some meaningful differentiation or what's your sort of mental model right now of what ESPN will roll out and what role it will play in the ecosystem? Sure. I would say my first comment is I'm happy that Penn National paid 550 million for more fuel in February or earlier this year, if it's not worth a dollar. So very happy that we all, the shareholders all got paid out. On ESPN, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's a parallel with Barstool of how do you go all in with talent? 
just because you have the ESPN bet logo and have some integration of Monday Night Football doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be successful. I think success or a precursor to success will be measured by on college game day is Lee Corso and Kirkhope Streets. These are the lines at ESPN bet. They don't even talk on college game day. They still allude to what the line is. Pat McAfee going to be pounding the table saying, you know, I love this team on ESPN bet today, or I love this player prop on ESPN bet. You should all go bet there too. Is Scott Van Pelt going to do it on SportsCenter when they do bad beats? And are they going to be really driving customers? Because I think what Marstool brings is the brand is a get you in the game. I think Penn would have not had much share. Marstool got them three plus percent. Can ESPN bet take them to five, 10, 15, or even 20% as they're aspirationally trying for it? It will all depend on how aggressive they're willing to be. And I, I personally, I don't see a great alignment of incentives that is going to push Disney slash ESPN to really go the extra mile to make that happen. So I'm withholding judgment on how successful it can be until we see just how deeply integrated and how much ESPN is willing to push, given it's largely a, a fixed cash marketing. Yeah, I think in a very literal sense, success for the deal means generating free cash flow whose net present value exceeds the cost of the relationship. Uh, and that cost is quite significant, $150 million guaranteed and, and reportedly a planned $150 million a year in additional marketing spend on, on top of that. Uh, and in terms of Penn's definition of success, it seems, you know, they, they, they communicated they're targeting 20% market share uh, once they see this relationship materialize. And so I think the big question is not what does success look like from a metrics perspective, but how do you actually get there? Uh, and I think it goes to a kernel of something that Dave referred to, which is using ESPN like the unique one-of-a-kind asset that it is. If this is simply a standard affiliate marketing relationship with some logo placement, some calls to action with some you know 20% payout boosts, it is really hard to imagine how that produces the amount of free cash flow needed to offset the cost. You start to imagine talent-related integrations of the likes that Dave mentioned. Should ESPN find itself as a standalone direct-to-consumer media product, perhaps that cost is somewhat or completely subsidized for users of ESPN bet where you can watch games and content for free. Uh, but I think there is no way that you get to a successful outcome without a truly unique or several unique integrations and activations. And what that then leaves you with is another point I think Dave left off on, which is, you know, are the incentives there such that both sides will be able to agree on these truly unique one of a kind type of integrations? Uh, and I think that is a, a story still yet to be written. Yeah, I think what I'd add is, you know, it's not new for ESPN to have sportsbook or operator partners as they consider their value as an affiliate player, most recently with DraftKings, as well as Caesar. So if it's simply, you know, going deeper with, with a NBA ESPN bet and, and filtering customers there, I, I think ultimately that's not going to be a strategy that's going to get them to those market share goals in the long term. The golden cohorts have largely been acquired. Mm -hmm. When you think about who are the users or the customers that are right for the picking? They're, they're likely those that either don't have sports books or are just getting into betting. And, you know, I certainly question the value of those customers via an ESPN bet or ESPN pushed ESPN bet product. I think for me, success, I'll go back to the product side. You know, they've got a real opportunity via the deepest media operator partnership to have deep integration on both the ESPN plus 
as well as the ESPN bet side. Now I'll caveat that by saying I'm, I'm skeptical. They're going to pull that off. When I, when I think about ESPN, it's near and dear to my heart. I grew up with ESPN. It's where I essentially watched all my sports as a kid. The top 10 plays was the only place to watch highlights. And you know what we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years as consumer technologies have sort of swept across the U.S. and in multiple industries, ESPN is largely lagged behind on that front, whether that just be simply the ESPN app or whether that be fantasy football on ESPN. They haven't really excelled at delivering just a stellar consumer technology that ultimately you know people love and use and, and want to touch every day. And as a, as a result, ESPN's value it largely accrues to the rights that they hold, not to the customers um, that they retain or the products that they release. So I think you know, if they really lean in heavily here from a technology standpoint, which um, will be difficult, but um, you think about betting integrations on the ESPN Plus side or, or live streams from ESPN within the ESPN bad app, I think, you know, those are two exciting dynamics that will present new opportunities in the industry. I'd say, you know, the other thing, Dave, you mentioned this of sort of loosely talking about gambling or, or walking around and Al Michaels does it all the time in the fourth quarter of football games. But um, I think simulcast on ESPN and, and more, more betting focused um, broadcast of games will be attractive to to a wide range of audiences and, and another area that they can lean in more heavily um, now that they have this direct partnership. But it's exciting for the space. I'm excited to see what they can do. Hopefully there is some genuine innovation that comes about as a result. But anytime you have this shakeup, I think it wakes up everybody else in the industry as well. So I would expect both the incumbents as well as um, the new entrants we've already talked about to, to step their game up as well and be ready with their own their own strategy as well. Yeah. And then the final thing I want to touch upon as it relates to Q3 at the operator level is a bit of sentiment that I've at least observed, which is that, you know, over Q3, I've seen a few operators sort of speak to the shift in marketing focus and correspondingly budgets from acquisition to retention. And I've sort of seen that corroborated a little bit downstream with some of the suppliers uh, as well and some of the focus set or some of the shifts in focus that they're taking in response to that. And curious to hear from each of you guys, you know, we hear a lot of lip service paid to retention, uh, but it's, it's maybe not as clear. Like, what does this look like in practice? What does a meaningful shift to retention look like? And I guess, you know, again, downstream of the operators potentially for suppliers and some startups in the industry, what potential opportunities does it create for some of these companies that are looking to serve the operators? I would just kick things off with a, a great analysis. I, I did not do it myself. I, I was just looking back here. It was uh, Jordan Bender at JMP Citizens who, who did it. And one of the things that that he had tracked, and I was reading this this morning, was the correlation between DraftKings' share of app downloads and share of revenue. And from the post passive period until four months ago, the correlation was almost perfect, 0.99, I think, as... DraftKings share of app downloads increased, their share of revenue increased proportionally, and same thing to the downside. And then like three or four months ago, that correlation completely broke. DraftKings share of downloads started to plummet and their GGR share continued to raise steadily. And I think that's the type of data point that you'll start seeing as an indication that we are moving from the customer acquisition gold rush phase into the retention, engagement, and optimization phase with a heavy focus on on unit economics. So uh, I'll have to think more about, as I let the other panelists here answer, you know, what exactly the implications and opportunities are because of that. But I think that is probably one of many data points that exist that show that there's no longer this direct correlation between gross marketing spend and market share or anything like that. And that product differentiation and loyalty programs and quality of product, ease of use, ease of deposits, all of these features are starting to drive incremental average revenue per user without necessarily adding incremental costs. Yeah, 
Great, great points, Floyd, and very interesting data as well. I, I think, you know what, I'd add one from a consumer standpoint, hopefully it, it makes our lives a little bit more enjoyable as we're not inundated with a new sports book ad every five to 10 seconds while watching a game, although I'm skeptical that will truly play on in the near term. But I think just when less money is spent on advertising, that's not good for the consumer. You know, those advertising dollars are only good at your point of acquisition, and they really don't go to building sustainable enterprise value at the operator level. So those funds can now be redirected into R&D. They can be redirected into product features. They can be redirected into releasing new betting markets. They can be redirected into expanding the scope of products outside of sports betting or iGaming um, that all of these players offer. I think that's exciting. Um, you're going to continue, in my opinion, to see operators try to keep their customers in their app as long as possible. So whether that be watching a game within an app, whether that be shopping within an app, whether that be any number of experiences that are tangential to watching a sporting event, you know, I think we'll see them start to move towards more of that everything app experience. Will that work? It's to be seen. And ultimately, we'll see how that plays out. But I expect a lot more innovation, you know, once again, on the product side, which at the end of the day is going to create a better experience for the customer where a lot of these operators really have lost commoditized products up to this point. And now it's up to them to figure out how do we differentiate either on the mass market scale or how do we target a niche audience, a, a customer that is underserved by a large incumbent and, and really think about a product that serves a, a specific audience's needs. Yeah, I really think about it as the sportsbooks have matured businesses they're serving in, in certain and then emerging businesses in, in places like Kentucky, where they're just going live for the first time and they are investing new customer acquisition and markets that are going live. But New Jersey, where this is now the sixth football season that New Jersey has been open, they're, they're investing in bonusing or promotions that drive people to come back for the new NFL season because, you know, it's not like you're finding new HVPs in New Jersey, high, high value players. Maybe there's still some people that are yet to be transitioned from the black or gray market or bookie betting, but they're, they're probably not a huge cohort of those customers. So it's all about continuing to grow within your existing customer base that's most valuable. And so I think you're seeing dollars redeployed into retention marketing, i.e. i.e. bonuses and, and promotions for existing players. And I think the product differentiation that John and Lloyd have talked about it is really key. You're not able to go out in a competitive market and just buy over these users with a, a big time sign up offer. Or if you do, they're just going back to their preferred product pretty quickly thereafter. So it's all about how do you create an experience, whether it's through personalization and new bet types, other features that drive people that want to use your particular app. Like, you know, Caesars, I was reading this morning is about to release their fire bet product, which is micro betting for the NFL to make all red zone. They, they certainly are trying to innovate on product and compete against FanDuel drafting by, by doing new things. So will something like that be successful? TBD, but is that the type of thing that operators are investing for and then just a customer acquisition or certainly that's the phase in the market we're heading toward? Awesome. Well, let's leave Q3 there then. I want to shift and talk a little bit about some more current topics here and maybe a bit of a look ahead. You know, last investor vibe check for Q2, we we sidestepped the topic of AI, but this time we're going to touch upon it in a more meaningful way. So maybe just to start off with, you know, looking across each of your respective portfolios, you all have some level of uh, exposure to AI within your portfolio companies. So just curious as a starting point, you know, how each of you are currently thinking about AI's place in the overall mix and you know, what particularly excites you about AI from an investor standpoint? John, maybe we can start with you on this one. Yeah, sure. You know, first, 
there's never been a more exciting time in technology and tech, technological innovation. And it's quite daunting, I think, from both an investor's perspective and from a founder's perspective, because every day you look on the internet and there's some breakthrough, new technology, new experience, new product that gets released. And it's hard to stay on top of it. But I think where, where we think about AI is really just multifaceted two ways. You have AI that can be leveraged internally within your operations and your workflows to optimize and be as efficient as possible as a team. And, and for us, that's sort of table stakes when we think about a new investment or when we have conversations with our portfolio companies. You know, that's as critical to us as team building. It's as critical to us as go-to-market strategy and just thinking through how are you going to position your company to operate in a more lean fashion or to operate at a scale that wasn't previously possible. I think any founder listening to this, whether you are AI focused or, or tech focused or not, you know, all founders are creative. All founders like to tinker with new technologies, you know, give AI a try and figure out the best ways to incorporate it within your business and ultimately put yourself ahead. So that's something I think is easy for, for anyone. I'd say that the second would be just an AI focused business, a, a company whose core business is AI, whether that be technology that you're selling on the B2B side or creating a consumer experience that leverages AI. And I think here, you know, I would challenge founding teams, make sure you've assembled a team that has a right to win in that industry. It's much more technical in nature and you have to make sure you have the players around the table and the expertise to stay on top of a rapidly moving industry and also, you know, take advantage of the technologies around you, but be cognizant that just because you can do something very quickly or very simply doesn't mean that your competitor next to you can't do the exact same thing. So think about what are those moats that are protectable? I think data is the obvious one. And this is one where incumbents have a major advantage over startups. And it can be difficult for a startup to think, how do we develop a proprietary data mode? And, you know, when we talk to startups in that space, it's if you don't have it today, just have that clear path. How are you going to acquire? How are you going to over time build a data stat that gives you a unique advantage such that you can provide differential insights down the road? So, you know, two things for us, both internally, how do you optimize and how do you make your team more efficient? There's so much opportunity when it comes to AI. And then when you're, you know, an AI first company, really thinking about who are the experts or the expertise you have on the team and, you know, how do you put yourself in a differentiated data position over time? It's funny. That's the exact way I, I was breaking down the, the question, you know, AI focused investments and then just use cases for AI among tech companies. And I think the way, way John said is absolutely right. AI is a tool asking, you know, how does your portfolio leverage AI is like saying, how does your portfolio use the internet or use computers? And if the answer is they're not using it at all, then it becomes very confusing as to how they are competing with modern businesses. Uh, and I should mention, I know you also have like some really early stage founders, Jesse, that you help promote and that I'm on the show. And at those stages, I would say beyond just what John had mentioned about using AI in, in everyday processes, it has led, especially with ChatGPT, to such a high availability of information that there's almost no excuse uh, as a founder for not having tried a certain number of, of things. At the very least, you can ask ChatGPT, what are the 10 most common mistakes that founders of a certain type of company make and, and iterate from there? And, and all the relentlessly resourceful founders out there are, are doing that. And, and so I definitely think that you are seeing a, a, a divide between resourceful founders and less resourceful founders because AI just accentuates that gap. Uh, I think on, on the, the other side that John described with making specific investments, all those points are exactly true. I think what we have found most exciting on that exact point of proprietary data sets and unique data sets, just in the way that Tesla has a leg up on every other autonomous vehicle manufacturer because they have driven more miles and collected more real life data. I think the analog in this space is 
who are the third-party turnkey AI providers who have processed the most bets or who have processed the largest number of betting accounts and betting account profiles and use those to really fine-tune all the algorithms that you would imagine would be used to customize the lobby that I see when I log on versus the lobby that John sees when he logs on or the recommended bets or the, hey, you placed bet X and people who like that also placed bet Y, so we're pre-populating a bet slip. Uh, all of those features are, are best accomplished by the group with the, the largest data set and who has processed the largest number of bets and the largest number of betting profiles. And so I think that is, is the area that is of great interest. And, and to cap off here, John's other point was, was so salient, which is this is a highly technical type of business uh, and you really need best in class data scientists and data architects and engineers on your side if you're going to be supplying AI-led or completely AI-powered products to multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies. Yeah, I think one of the last points Lloyd made reminded me of one of our share portfolio companies, Future Anthem, who has processed billions of online casino spins so they can learn from their client, continue to optimize their algorithm for recommendations on, you know, this player archetype, what game is best to present to them, what bonus offer is most compelling or depending on the, the timing with some of their real-time trend prediction, like this user has lost five spins in a row and based on their behavioral patterns, now they're likely to churn. It's different for every customer what that pattern might look like. And so servicing up them a bonus in, in real time to minimize churn, I think that's extremely valuable. And that goes back to our, our prior discussion of re retention and shifting away from acquisition marketing to retention marketing in product differentiation in that, I think of future Anthem and there's certainly other companies in that space as a key to helping companies, uh, operators that is improve their product and optimize existing customer retention by just providing them a much better experience of, of the product. So I think there's a, a lot of different use cases for AI, which Lloyd and John have, have touched on. So figure I would just highlight one of them. Yeah. And then the other topic, guys, I want to touch upon here is responsible gambling. And look, there's a, a growing conversation, I think, around RG and affordability checks and, and really ensuring sector sustainability. And curious to hear from, again, your perspectives as investors, you know, how critical is it for betting companies to be, you know, actively promoting responsible gambling and not even just the operators, right? I mean, there's obviously a very robust ecosystem of betting tools and obviously content is prominent. And from your perspective as investors, how does this sort of growing call for more enhanced RG impact or influence potential investment decisions for you? I think RG sometimes gets framed in the minds of executives as standing in an economic zero-sum relationship with profitability. But I actually think that over the long term, the long-term profit-maximizing approach to responsible gaming is also the socially conscious one, which is that the entire industry benefits by preventing the very small percentage of people who are afflicted with gambling addiction from partaking and, and accentuating some of their detrimental behaviors. And not to keep plugging this same shared portfolio company that, that Dave just mentioned, but I, I think where it gets interesting is where it gets more, more nuanced. Yes, of course, you'll always have operators hosting 1-800 numbers and responsible gaming placards on their websites. The company that Dave and I invested in, which has as their core competency, AI-powered real-time personalization and customization and, and churn prediction, as you might imagine, can use that same type of pattern recognition to recognize 
when players are deviating from responsible gaming behaviors in real time. Uh, and where I think it gets really interesting, and again, nuanced and subtle, is when such an observation is made, not necessarily closing the player's account or immediately force closing the app or anything like that, but what this particular uh, company does is help steer those users back towards safer play, recommend them some free-to-play games or some lower stakes betting or you know whatever the pattern matching algorithm has identified as being the most de-escalatory types of recommendations that can be served. And so I think when we look out at the role of technology and what it will play in the future, I think it is those more subtle AI-powered, data-driven, real-time interventions uh, that are quite interesting here. Uh, with that said, you know, certainly if you look at every other regulated sports betting market, they have all faced periods of rapid expansion, followed by periods of rabid public backlash, most of which have usually resulted in certain responsible gaming or, in the case of the UKGC, affordability checks-related controls. And I do think we should all expect, if the industry continues to expand at the pace that it has, that there will be some sort of similar backlash here and that operators who are proactive in instituting responsible gaming measures and in making sure that regulators are comfortable and don't feel pressured to over-regulate, to me, that is, is the biggest danger or trap to avoid a, a scenario where regulators and the government have to come in and say to the DraftKings and Fandals of the world, here is the way in which you must operate on the responsible gaming front. So I think over the long term, the answer is all technology. And over the short term, there will be some messaging and pageantry, for lack of a better word, and proactivity that would be prudent on behalf of some of the market leaders. Couldn't agree more with Lloyd on the long-term profit maximization approach. Like to me, that's absolutely critical. And you could say in the short term, right, you, you may be foregoing short-term profits if you push those responsible gaming initiatives, but it's going to benefit everyone in the long run. And, and what I'll hit on is just for, for early stage companies, because it's an area we've spent a lot of time in recent weeks and something we're thinking about a lot. And when you operate in a regulated industry, uh, which sports betting and, and iGaming certainly are, um, you know, it comes with a number of stakeholders, whether those be regulators or politicians or the players themselves. And as a result, to have a durable and sustainable business, responsible gaming needs to be at the forefront of everything that you do. So what I would tell startups is there's a lot of alternative business models or workarounds to sort of license gaming opportunities that exist in the space today. And, you know, for us as investors, we're always considering not just what's the low hanging fruit, how can, how can you get from zero to one? But we're looking for investments that are home runs. We're looking for investments that can go from zero to 100. So whenever we think about that, we have to consider, you know, is this a company that as they get bigger and bigger, are they going to start to draw the attention of regulators or the attention of gaming commissions? And how are they going to be viewed favorably or negatively based on the steps that they've taken to protect their users, to follow the laws that exist today, to position themselves to be a durable and sustainable business. So just because you might have a legal opinion that you can do one thing today, just consider what that long-term um, outlook might look for your business and, and not how you can get from, say, seed to series A, but you know how do you ultimately get to, to an IPO or get to an exit um, and be an attractive and durable, sustainable business in that way? Yeah, I, I think the crude summary is operators would like customers to lose less slower to drive longevity. And responsible gaming just isn't limited these messaging or deposit limits or discussion of our credit cards appropriate. It also includes like how much time between spins in certain other countries around the world. If you're playing an online slot, there's a mandatory duration. It's not like you can keep hammering the button 
at play an insane amount of hands in a very short period of time? Or what about in the online casino space, what I like to term that games, you can probably play a hundred hands of programmatic blackjack. And is it healthier and better for customers to be playing a live dealer product where they can only play 10 hands a minute? And so your entertainment value or entertainment experience is, is going on much longer and it's much healthier level pace of play. I think that often gets overlooked when people just talk about responsible gaming because there's a lot of nuance and noise that you can surface as you dig into the details of various ways that you could be doing or, or fostering a much more healthy entertainment ecosystem. And that, to the points raised, that benefits everyone in the long run, both operators and suppliers of, of this content, is you want to drive a healthy player engagement with these entertainment products that promote long-term retention where they're seeing entertainment value even if there's losses or, or on these games. Awesome. We have about 10 minutes left, guys. So I want to use the remainder of our time here today around a few topics that are directly relevant to early stage companies in this space. And a lot of the audience are founders within the industry that are trying to, you know, carve out their own little corner of it. And, you know, they all face the same challenges endemic to, to any founder and any startup in any industry. So to start with, what I'd love to hear from each of you is, particularly at the pre-seed or seed stage, you know, for founders that are out there right now looking to raise a round, what dimensions would you suggest they over-index on given the you know current funding environment, the macro backdrop, et cetera? Like what are sort of the two or three dimensions you think they should really hyper-focus on to maximize their chances of success in the current environment? I can start. Obviously, over-indexing on unit economics and building a sustainable business where you can draw a straight line from where we are now to sustainable free cash flow generation and profitability is probably chief among them. I think one of the exciting things about investing in the current market uh, is that companies in theory should be built with a, a different type of DNA than perhaps they were being built with in, in 2021. It is very hard to retrofit a company's culture. Once the company has grown, you really want to bake in things like fiscal responsibility and an emphasis on profitability and unit economics from day one. And now that some of the pressures of growth at all costs have been removed on behalf of investors in the macro, I, I think Absolutely, it is incumbent upon founders to, to really showcase that profitability is part of the DNA from day one of the company. But more than anything, and, and, and I've said this you know, other times in other places before, the earlier you are as a company, the more of a bet you are asking someone to make on you as a person, on a, as a founder, and as a team. And so I think the biggest thing to over-index on is being the type of founder that people want to back regardless of what the product or what the pitch is at, at the current moment. And I don't even know if that is a goal that you can achieve by directly pursuing it. You probably have to pursue a bunch of ancillary goals that then sort of as an emergent property make you into one of those types of people. But that I think is more valuable than anything else specific. Any particular KPIs is showcasing that you are worth backing. And no matter what comes in the economy and what feedback you receive from the market, you will iterate that business to a successful outcome and uh, your investors will want to back you time and time again in your future endeavors. Yes, for, for us, we're looking for clear ROI on, on the product. Candidly, we're probably a little bit different in that we're focused on B2B. So we're trying to assess, you know, how much demand do your customers have for your software, the, the products you're selling, which is also applicable in, in B2C. But I think even at that early stage seed level, you want to see strong customer stickiness and hear, you know, from that startup's customers that 
these are products they can't live without, that they find them extremely valuable, that'll provide you pricing leverage, that'll provide you upsell mechanics to provide them more and more products and, and services, which will be beneficial to the long term. So for us, it's about encouraging founders to, you know, demonstrate how valuable their products is to their customers or frankly, keep building until you can get to that point because certainly we're in a tighter market where the valuation gap founder expectations and investors is certainly a lot wider than it was. And so you're having hard conversations about what the business is worth, but the more you can be setting the groundwork for long-term success and customer stickiness, the more investor interest you'll command. And then as markets improve and, and you continue to grow, that's when you'll see the, the significant value accretion happen. I think the one thing I'll add here, and, and we talk to all of our portfolio companies about this regularly, we, we beat it like a dead horse. And, and we talk to every company that we look to invest in as well as just, you know, have a clearly defined North Star metric um, that you're trying to achieve, particularly at the pre-seed and, and the seed stage where you're very unlikely to be profitable going into your next fundraise. And the bar is, is high to raise your next round. And it's really important to just have transparent conversations with those seed or pre-seed investors on what are you trying to achieve and make sure that you're aligned. That's whatever that goal is ultimately going to accrete value to the company that you're building. And then make it an attractive company for new investors to, to help you continue to, to operate or for your existing investors to put more money in and double down behind um, something that shows great promise. And you'd be shocked, I think, how often founders forget that and don't have you know a clear definition of what success looks like. And you know I'll caveat this by saying that could change drastically over the course of the investment. So what your North Star metric is on day one may not be your North Star metric one year into it. And that's totally fine. But it allows for more clear and transparent conversations with your investors. It's much easier to follow the business and the progress of the business over that time. And then to the extent that either those metrics are being blown out of the water or on the other end of the spectrum, maybe those metrics aren't the right metrics and the business has to pivot. It just ends up being an easier conversation for investors. But I think, you know, that next round of funding is something that's in the back of everybody's mind. We're not in 2020, 2021 when, you know, companies and markups seem to happen almost overnight and without actual progress happening. So I think, you know, having that conversation up front with the investors is just really important to have alignment on, you know, if we're successful, this is what it will look like. And, you know, that's going to help you, I think, from both evaluation and dilution perspective, as well as you have those conversations, just to make sure you're aligned with your investors on ultimately what you're trying to achieve. Awesome. A couple of rapid fire questions to round out our time today. Uh, I'll start with this. I guess, you know, we're in Q4, which is a home stretch of 2023. As you guys look ahead to the rest of the year, and I guess next year in 2024, which industry sectors or verticals or categories are you most bullish on and which are you perhaps bearish on? I'll say bullish on personalization, customization, instant gratification, and, and providing users a path of least resistance. Bearish on companies that don't have a, a reason for being and a truly differentiated position to occupy in the market. I'm really bullish on live casino. I think the advent of that market really provides more entertainment value. We invested in a Dutch company called Stake Logic, which is a leader in the, the live casino space and has licensed their software to Bally. So Bally's in Rhode Island can do live casino from the two casinos that they own in Rhode Island. So if you want to have this sit down at a blackjack table type experience in Rhode Island, you can do it anywhere, which I think is a really compelling transition from from physical to digital and casino. 
Two that I'm bullish on, I think one's just sports betting media, not necessarily from the incumbent media players, but from startups as well. There's never been more expansive betting market than opportunities to have skin in the game and have wagers. And as a result, the diversity of content that can appeal to a broad base of users has never been greater. I mentioned at the start of the episode as well, but just, you know, cash-based steel gaming, particularly on the casual gaming front, we believe it's got a lot of room to run both within the US and sports betting destigmatizes just the idea of having capital behind your entertainment. And then also on the international front, you've got markets like India that offer just huge and expansive markets around the skill-based gaming front. Awesome. And we're dropping this episode just a couple of days before G2E in Las Vegas. And typically and historically at G2E, the week starts with, you know, more often than not a fairly large M&A deal that will get announced. And don't want to put you guys on the spot, but I do want to see if you have any guesses or predictions as to any, you know, you know, earth-shattering deals that might get announced on Monday next week when we all convene in Las Vegas. Apollo buying IGT has been in the rumor mill for a while now. I have no idea whatsoever if that's happening, but that would be an interesting time. And then there was that report a couple months ago that Stake.com was uh, allegedly looking to make a, a major acquisition in the U.S. And I am quite eager to find out what that is. It's nothing from my perspective to add. Sorry, Dave, go ahead. I take the under on a big deal announcement. I think everyone is so profitability focused, whether you're in the regional casino business or in the digital space, and there's a push to kind of optimize and drive margins up, particularly in digital. So I almost think this is like the operational phase of the market. And frankly, unless you need to sell, prices are pretty, pretty distressed or are certainly pretty compressed. So I would just take the under and, and think everyone's focused on how do they continue to enhance profitability as the theme of the week. Awesome. To round out here today, guys, if you could each uh, give listeners, you know, the, a sense of where they can go to either send you a pitch deck, get in touch with you or your firm, and basically where they can go to learn more about your respective portfolios. Yeah, I'll jump in here first. So for Drive by Drafting, you can check out our website, drivebydraftings.com. We've got an info inbox there, info at drivebydraftings.com, where we accept you know, any type of materials, deck, intro, whatever it may be. You can also email me directly. John at drivebydraftkings.com would be happy to meet with any of you or review any opportunities that you send my way. I'll also be out at G2E in person. So if anybody listening happens to be making the trip out West uh, to Vegas for the week, definitely reach out. Would love to connect with as many people as possible. Yeah. SharpAlphaAdvisors.com is our website. We have a little link at the very bottom that allows companies to, to submit materials. You can also email them to deals at sharpalphaadvisor.com and, and find me personally on, on LinkedIn. It's probably my social media of choice these days. Yeah, all of the above web links. Awesome. I'll drop links in the show notes to all of those. But for now, guys, that concludes the Q3 Investor Vibe Check. Really appreciate you guys participating today and sharing your perspectives and look forward to seeing you all in the desert next week in Vegas at G2E. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Take care, everyone.